and welcome to another episode of the Transfer News Central podcast. This is the start of the new series of podcasts we're releasing, promoting the idea of staying at home amid a very treacherous time at the moment. And what better way to celebrate, not celebrate, wrong word, but to um, have some entertainment to listen to than not obviously myself, Johnny, but uh, we brought Ian along with us. Ian Dark, one of the best commentators of the past 30 years, football, boxing, I believe athletics actually at some point earlier on in, the, in, in your career, Ian. Welcome on board. We're absolutely delighted to have you. Yeah, nice to speak to you, Johnny. And uh, let's hope everybody's keeping nice and safe and we're, we're back out there in the football world pretty soon. Absolutely. I mean, the, the be- there's no better question really to start with, Ian, than just, a- just asking simply how you are and how you're coping. I'm sure many people want to know. Well, thanks for asking, Johnny. Yeah, okay so far, as are all my family as well, very happily. Uh, we've, we've been staying indoors bar the odd walk through our village and we're just sitting tight and hoping for the best like everybody else. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm sure, well, many of your followers saw, as I alluded to before coming on here, a few uh, Ian Dark techers with the football, powerful right foot into the top corner. So I guess I've got to ask you, Ian, are you going to be doing any tricks on the pommel horse in the coming days? <laughs> no, I'm not Max Whitlock. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm no threats to, to any of them. And uh, that little football video that we put out on, on Twitter, which got a, a, a lot of views, I have to say, so people must be pretty bored. Uh, all I can <laughs> say is I'm still deadly from half a yard out. Absol- absolutely, absolutely. No, it was very good to see it. It was very good. Have you tried the uh, toilet roll challenge yet? No, I haven't got to that one yet. Um, but I was reading a piece about Sadio Mane, Mm. Uh, that he learned to play football using a grapefruit. Wow. From Senegal. So all things are possible. But I know Lionel Messi is quite handy with those toilet rolls, isn't he? Ab- absolutely. I've yeah. that, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure many of us are very handy with the toilet rolls, Ian. Uh, but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll move on swiftly, I think, from that. At this moment, actually... On a more serious note, Premier League footballers actually came in for quite a lot of... Well, there was a subtle dig from the government. Matt Hancock thought that uh, it was appropriate to say, uh, to suggest that Premier League footballers ought to be doing more uh, to, uh, to combat uh, the, the, um, the crisis that we, we currently li- are living in. So how pleasing was it for someone like you who's, you know, works very much on the front lines of, fo- of the footballing game to see Premier League footballers bounce back emphatically from the sort of uh, put down from the government uh, in, the, in the Players Together initiative, which, in which all, all, a, a large group of players across the Premier League platform have contributed lots of finances towards, towards the NHS and towards particular sectors in, in the UK that are struggling at the moment. Uh, very gratifying, really, because I think the footballers were in danger of mm. getting themselves a, a bad name. But I do think this despite the fact that they may be young millionaires playing in the the Premier League, they are, in the main, working-class guys who haven't forgotten their roots and really do want to help. So I think, really, where the game's been perceived to be dragging its feet is trying to work out exactly how that help can be done. It's great to see the captains have got Mm. together and the players are doing their own thing. I think the Professional Footballers Association have been... um, let's put it this way, a little out of touch in realising that the clubs are actually, even in the Premier League, with all the money in the Premier League, they are in a difficult time and the players do need to cut their wages to help out a little bit. And uh, it's good to see that some of the clubs are doing that, Southampton, Brighton, and I think others will follow soon. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been so many nice gestures other than that even. Uh, Particularly, I remember, I think, Carlo Ancelotti, Everton manager, and some some of my own club, I'm a Burnley fan, a lot of the Burnley players were calling up fans who were in in a particular struggle, given the situation. And it was really touching. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've seen some of these examples on social media. It's really nice, isn't it, that I suppose, even though, as, as we've sort of alluded to, there's this idea that footballers maybe are in their own little bubble, that they, that they do come from those working class backgrounds and that they can still give something back, you know, in, 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 this, time of, in this time of need. Yeah, I think it's important as well that they do. It, it doesn't take much and it means so much to ordinary people if they get a phone call from, from the famous player from their team. Um, and all they've got to do is pick up the phone. And let's be honest about it, like the rest of us at the moment, the players are just 
hanging around with very little to fill their day other mm. than trying to keep fit. So, um, yeah, I think it's good. And, and I hope, in a way, we're all going to be looking at the world in a slightly different way after this. And, and maybe it's been true that, that footballers, although they do care, perception means a lot. And I think there is a perception that they are living in a, in a, a bubble behind mm big walls and driving fast cars and living a life the rest of us don't recognize. I think this has brought everybody right back down to earth and, and maybe made us all realize that uh, the real heroes are maybe not the sports stars and the big celebrities we see on TV. The real heroes are the people who save lives. Absolutely well said and brilliantly put. On a slightly lighter note, because I mean, of course, I feel like I did a podcast quite recently, was talking very heavily about the the, and it was quite downbeat. You know, everything that's going on at the moment is quite overwhelming. It's unprecedented yeah. times, really. So just to just to shift the topic a little bit, of course, Ian, you've, apart from doing your footballing techers in the garden, I'm sure you've, you, you know, you'll have to keep yourself occupied in other ways. So just a few uh, quick fire questions for you. What's your favourite musical artist? Who's your favourite uh, performer? Well, I, my tastes are quite eclectic. If, if you oh. went in, the music I've got on my phone that comes on in my car ranges from everything from um, songs from the musicals and doo-wop hits from the 1950s right through to the likes of Eminem. So <laughs> it's hard to categorize what my tastes are. Mm. I, like, I like a lot of different things. I'm, I'm, I don't have a kind of closed mind. I suppose if I, you picked an artist, uh, um, quite a fan of David Gray. Mm. Very, very good. I mean, Eminem surprises me, and I've got to admit. Um, Only a couple of tracks. I mean, everybody else, they get in my car and they think, what's this old guy? <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you think of Stormzy, Ian? Are you a big Stormzy uh, fan? No, I've, I've heard a bit of his stuff, and some of it is quite good, but mm. no, I haven't got that any, any of that in my collection at the moment. Uh, very, very interesting. Ian Dark likes Eminem. I'm sure that'll be on the, the front page somewhere. Uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, what about favourite film, Ian? Favourite film? Those are hard questions off the top of your head, but I mean, mm. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid mm. came up somewhere the other day, and I watched mm. that. Still a fantastic screenplay, mm -hmm. beautifully written, mm -hmm. such a clever movie mm. so I, I definitely picked that out and um i grew up with a journalistic training so i love all the president's men that's right. another oh, very one good, very good one, isn't it yeah classics in classics the expose of of watergate i mean in more recent years spotlight was good in the same kind of genre the film about you know based on the boston mm. globe and exposing the corruption in the catholic church mm. anything on netflix ian that takes your fancy um, I've been watching, well, I've watched the Sunderland Till I Die thing, mm. and I watched, I'm watching every episode of Line of Duty back, so I missed <laughs> that the first time around, so love mm. that. And yeah, I've been trawling through Netflix and, and finding some old, old movies and, and series. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to see there. I'm sounding like an advert for Netflix. <laughs> Other, other other streaming services are available, like Amazon yeah. Prime, of course. Yes, <laughs> I'm well, I did, well, I worked for Prime Video on when they had you the did. Premier League games. You did, season. you did. Revolutionising streaming in many ways, actually, Amazon with the Premier League. I mean, that's the, they're the first uh, company, I believe, aren't they, to have have made it a streaming service that shows the Premier League. Well, you don't know the which way it's going to go. I think the, co mm. the coverage of the game on television especially mm. now and that will have made i think people think that every game was available and i wonder if that's <laughs> the general direction in which we're heading mm. it, it, it'll be interesting to see uh, another another question here then quick fire before we go on to uh, your wonderful career uh, well it's kind of related to that who's the who's your favorite person within the footballing world who you've met face to face oh whatever yeah Can I, I might you've, need, you've, I might you've need time I might need time to think of that one, really. Mm. But somebody like Steve McManaman would be up there. Yeah, because, I was, I, we'll talk uh, about Steve. Steve McManaman's, yeah. a, Steve McManaman's a great guy. And mm. um, we've, we've worked a lot mm. together in, in recent years. And I don't think anybody who works with him or knows him in our business thinks otherwise mm. uh, than that either. So, I mean, uh, hey, look, that's a, that's a big question <laughs> and over a long time. But, yeah, Steve would be up there. Mm. Stephen, I should say, he, he told me one. This is something he said to me that um, he was never called Steve by anybody until he started playing football. He was always Stephen. 
Wow. I said, well, why didn't you say to the journalist, call me Stephen? He said, well, I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> no, to be, to be honest, whenever I've heard Steve McManaman on any show, he always seems like a really relaxed, laid-back, fun guy. And, I, I, and it doesn't surprise me. I know you, you, you've uh, had a wonderful time together with ESPN, actually, I think it was initially, in America. So we'll touch on that later on. But we'll go a bit further back in. We'll go a bit further back. There's a, there's a chronology to this show, even if it looks like my head isn't screwed on. I, I like to think that somewhere the, this planning will pay off. So let's go back to Ian Dark right to the beginning. Right. When you were growing up, you know, was there ever an inkling that you thought, you know what? Because you, you know, was, you, you talk to hear some footballers and you say, what did you want to be when you grew up? And they say, I always, want, I always knew I was going to be a footballer. From, from, since I was born, it was, it was what I was destined to be. When you were going through high school, Ian, what, 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 what was your general consensus? Were you unsure? What were you like at school? Broad question. I'm sure you can answer. Uh, not very good at school academically until I mm. got to the sixth form when I mm. started to get the hang of it and passed my, passed my A-levels okay at grammar school. Quite reticent, a little bit shy. But here's something my friends tell me that I used to commentate on the house football matches at school from mm. the sidelines when I wasn't playing. And I also remember commentating on games I'd play against myself in the back garden the sort of make-believe ashes cricket series so i don't know maybe something was there but i'd be lying if i said to you i always knew i was going to be a commentator what i wanted to be originally was a was a footballer mm. wasn't good enough and mm. uh, then i wanted to be a journalist which i was for a little while mm. before going into radio mm. well that's interesting actually My, me myself i'm sure i speak for many people now really are uh, really enamored with the sports journalism uh, business and really want to get in there um just before we move on to uh, your later career is there anything in particular you you'd give us as kind of i know you get this question all the time probably but what would the general advice be for wannabe people in that field if you want to get into broadcasting i'd say from a very early age if you can try to get used to talking in front of a microphone which some people are very self-conscious about, very nervous about even. But even if you buy an old-fashioned piece of equipment, just get that from somewhere and practice talking into the microphone, talking about football matches or whatever your, your favorite sport is. And then maybe bit by bit, you, you will develop your own style and start to, to relax. And I'd always say to people, just, just be yourself. Don't try to be anybody else. Be, your, mm -hmm. be yourself in front mm -hmm. of that microphone. Mm. I mean, you, you say that, Ian, that's, very, that's a very important thing as well, because you see so many different commentators now have a particular style. You can hear it, you can hear just a few words and you go, that's Martin Tyler. You can hear another few words and that's Peter Drury, that's Ian Dark. You know, the, the, you all have a, I think every commentator has a particular way of doing their job. What would you say your style is now? What would you, what's your style for commentary? Hard to categorise, really, mm. because I'm not conscious of, of actually... Uh, when I'm broadcasting, of I've got to do it in this style. It, mm. it comes out the way that it, it comes out. And I guess over the years, your style does evolve. But you're, you're quite right. I think every commentary style has its own particular DNA. And I admire so many different styles as well. There's more than one way to, to crack the egg. It's not an exact science. And I've always said the same thing, really, that you know one man's great commentator is is the next one's pain in the backside it's just it's just the way it is it's just it's a subjective business but i do think there are a few hard and fast rules along the way that that i think could help any young commentator coming through mm, sure i mean uh, so very good very good advice there ian when we go you you talked about your a levels you know and, and that's no mean feat by the way i think anyone who goes down that path and completes their a levels very well done because honestly i've never worked harder academically um so fair play for that ian but where do you, so you went to university i imagine after that no, I didn't go to university. Because okay. I, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a journalist, so I mm. went to on a on a full year uh, journalism course. Which at the end of it, they promised you a job on a regional newspaper. So, <laughs> guess what? I ended up going back to the city I was born in, Portsmouth. I support the local team. I think some people know that, um, and worked on the Portsmouth Evening News. That was my first job in newspapers, and it was there I did my first commentary as well for the local hospital radio wow. uh, channel commentating alongside the local fire chief initially then then i started commentating with some injured players 
uh, on Pompey matches down at Fran Park. And then at the end of the season, uh, we were told nobody had ever heard the games uh, because there'd been a technical fault. So it really was a, a very long audition over a whole season. Uh, how it took them until the end of the season to find out nobody was hearing it, that's another question. But uh, hey, it was good experience. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I mean, that's fascinating stuff, and it really is. I mean, when you look back now, could you imagine listening to that commentary now and thinking, oh, I sounded a bit, you know, I'm not quite as refined as maybe I am now. Or, do you, or even then, did you think, oh, I have a good base, you know, for my, for my commentaries? I imagine you've sort of come on so far, you know, in, in, your, in your career. At, when you go back to that, because I, I think of, I used to do a little bit of commentary a few years ago, and the first one I did, Oh, it was awful. And then as I, as I slowly built myself up, I got better. But I imagine for you, doing commentary for over 30 years, going right back to the beginning, it must, have, it must, have been, must, be, it must be strange if you could hear that now. Yeah, well, I sometimes cringe on some of the commentaries I do even now because you're never, you're never happy. You've never done the perfect one. So, yeah, I have no idea what it sounded like. Probably pretty awful. Probably way, way too overexcitable because I was excited about doing a doing a, a second division match being play, played at Fratton Park. But it doesn't matter in a way because when I went to national radio, BBC Radio Sports and Broadcasting House and all that and, and joined what was really a bit of an academy, they got me commentating on some boxing because Desmond mm -hmm. Lynham, you'll know Desmond Lynham, he'd left, he did the boxing commentary. Mm -hmm. I must have done 40 test commentaries, none of which were deemed good enough before they let me loose on the airwaves. So, yeah, don't be frightened of making mistakes. Everybody's going to make mistakes. Everybody's going to call things wrong. Everybody's going to dry up from time to time. Just stick at it, and bit by bit, you'll start to get it right if you're determined enough. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If, if at first you don't succeed, as, as they say, um, try, well, try again. Somebody, somebody once said, if you first, at first you don't succeed, maybe failure is your style. But that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I, I've been, yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's also a very fair thing to say. But uh, you obviously, so you, so you were doing that quite, uh, quite a bit at the start. You were, do, you were doing that kind of work. But then you moved into BBC Radio. Now, when, yeah. when you move into BBC Radio, is that something... BBC, do you suddenly think, right, I've got my foot in the door now. This is kind of, you know, at the time, I think uh, it would have been the 80s, wouldn't it, Ian, I believe, it was the 80s for, the, for BBC. At the time, that wasn't quite as big as... Well, I worked for local radio in the 70s at Leicester. Yeah. That's where I first got into the BBC, and I was as nervous as a kitten. I had to mm. read the news on about the second day I was there. I remember one day talking about things going wrong. I fell down the stairs on the way down Ooh. from the ninth to the eighth floor where you had to read the news and I read the news with blood gushing from a, a gash <laughs> on my forehead which was obscuring the script so you know that, that was a bit of a baptism of fire all kinds of things happened to you along the way but uh, yeah working on in local radio knocked a few edges off so I think when I went to national radio that was a big help. I'd, I'd done five years of broadcasting by then mm. and I was well I wouldn't say I was ready but I was nearly ready to be uh, to be on national radio, absolutely. I mean, but but as I was sort of suggesting before that, and you've sort of come up with the answers that we're kind of looking for there. When you when we when we say BBC, as we say that that must have given you like wow. I'm not 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 I'm not I'm not suggesting uh, the ego's gone through the roof, you know, ridiculously. But it must be a nice feeling to think, oh, take in in essence, it's like the blue tick on Twitter back then. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's you're right. I was very, very proud to work for the BBC, and and yeah, you do have a a feeling of wow, this 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 is something quite special. But then another emotion yeah. comes in and say, well, I've got to, I've got to be good enough to do that. But the standards were exacting there, very exacting at times, and but it was really good for you because it was it was a school of hard knocks in many ways, especially working for the BBC Radio Sports Department. If they said they wanted a, a piece to la that lasted one minute, they meant one minute, not 61 seconds, not 59. And, and if you overran on any piece, you certainly got told about it. Or if they thought that your script was a bit below par, or you might do a report or a piece into the sports desk and they'd say, well, you didn't make that point very well. Why did you use that word? So it was brilliant, really, because... I think every broadcaster, it doesn't matter who they are, you do need feedback because it, it does help to improve you. Mm. 
I mean, yeah, absolutely, uh, certainly. And, and as you say, the School of Hard Knocks would, would stand you in good stead anyway. That kind of precision, that kind of uh, accuracy to, to, to absolutely get it on point would no doubt be absolutely massive for any career, really, any career path. So then to go from the BBC to Sky Sports, you know, I mean, that, that's another step in itself, I guess, because Sky then uh, acquired the rights to the Premier League. You became one of a big four you know, shall we say, one of the big four, Martin Tyler, Rob Hawthorne, Alan Parry and yourself. How was it going from BBC Radio, you know, where, where, where you've done a lot of sport there, as I say, that's an overwhelming feeling of, of the, that, you, you know, you've made it, you're going somewhere. Then you're on Sky Sports, massive new thing, Premier League football, one of the top four commentators covering all these big games. I mean, that must have been another sense of wow. Well, at, at the beginning, it wasn't four. It was just me and Martin Tyler. And Martin was the main man, mm. as he is still now for Sky Sports. Um, mm-hmm. So he would do like the Super Sunday games, as they called them. And I would do the Monday night matches in mm. the early days of Sky Sports. And I've got to tell you, um, I was pretty new to television then. I'd just moved from radio to television. I'd done a bit of work at, at Eurosports. I was getting the hang of it. But uh, huge pressure on it. I remember thinking... At that time, everybody was thinking, well, what, what is this channel? Who are these new boys who are coming in showing the football now? Why isn't it on BBC? Why isn't it on ITV anymore? I mean, who are they anyway? So they were all waiting. You had the feeling that the whole of the, the, the press and other sections of the media were waiting with daggers drawn to rip big holes in our coverage. But they didn't do that. They liked the coverage and they could see that it was probably a step up with more cameras and maybe more depth to the coverage as well. So they were exciting early days. They were, they were days really where we were breaking new frontiers along the way and thoroughly enjoyable. And I do remember some of my fondest memories are doing those Monday night matches in the first season of the Premier League. And Sky Sports, of course, well, the rest is history, as they say. Mm. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you're quite right, actually. It was initially the two commentators. I believe it came into uh, four commentators, the big four, wasn't it? When uh, a few years later, the uh, Sky got the boxing rights and then they had to sort of expand and bring in, I think, I think when Rob Hawthorne took over Monday Yeah, night. Rob came in the mid-90s. I think Alan Parry yeah. came in the mid-90s mm. as well. Um, of course, um, Ian Crocker was on the scene, late, later Bill Leslie, who's still mm. around, of course, um, you know, and, and all those guys have made very good careers. Yeah, you're right. I had to do a little bit less of the football for a while because I, was, I also do boxing commentary and uh, was covering a lot of big fights. Yeah, I mean, um, it's quite, I mean, that's quite an interesting turn. I mean, how, you, you do, you'd done a bit of boxing, hadn't you, before anyway, but to then become the number one Sky sports commentator for boxing, did you see it as a, I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. Obviously, you're a big football fan. Did you think, oh, it's a shame... I'm transitioning now, you know, I, I like doing the football, I like my Monday night slot, or did you think, right, I'm the main guy doing boxing, I really like this new opportunity? Well, I, football is my first love, <laughs> to be honest with you. Boxing was something that I, I always liked growing up, and I used to listen to the fights on the radio, and I had pretty good knowledge of it, which was why, even though I was a junior reporter at BBC Radio, just going back a bit, that when Desmond Lynham left to go to television and have his stellar career there, I was the only one really around the rest of the office who had too much of a handle on it at the time. So I got sent to cover you know, big fights in Las Vegas mm-hmm. for BBC mm-hmm. Radio. So I had that bit of background. I got the, I got the job because I'd done it in radio. I was, I was getting the fights for Sky Sports when they signed a big, big deal with, with Frank Warren. And maybe for the next 20 years, nearly all the big fights were on Sky Sports. Few, a few were on ITV. So... Yeah, but, uh, but football always remained my first love. And for most of the time I was at Sky Sports, I did football and boxing. Mm. I mean, uh, I, I'll keep this mainly football related because as, as, as is the case with me and also football is my uh, main sport. But I do want to ask you what it was like to commentate on the uh, boxing fight between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson when Mike Tyson yeah. did the particular infamous ear incident. Yeah, you, you're talking about the bite of the century, uh, fight, <laughs> where, uh, yeah, where, of course... Uh, Luis Suarez, later. A bit of Evander Holyfield's ear, mm. famously. And that, that was the night, I remember, the only time I ever... And people will know about the electric-haired American promoter, Don King, uh, who, who ruled the roost in American boxing. That's the only time I've ever heard him on TV, the interviewer, 
saying, Don, shut up. I'm talking to Mike here. Uh, he tried to interrupt the interview to, to explain what Tyson had done. There was no defense no, to what Tyson no. had done. No, no, absolute madness. I mean, it, I mean, it, it, I'd say it's such a privilege to be there commentating on it, but also I'd be quite disturbed by the, by everything going on at the time. It's certainly well, it's shameful, really. It was a big yeah. story, but it was it was it was shameful and and kind of sad as well that it had it slipped to that. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Well, I was there was a follow up question actually about the boxing in terms of when ITV acquired the, most of the rights and you got uh, pushed back into the football. More, more so. I was going to say, were you disappointed to lose out on the boxing? But as you sort of alluded to, probably not. It was obviously good to be back on the you know, football front lines, I guess, for Sky again. Well, what, what actually happened there was it wasn't so much that other channels moved in, but I think the management of Sky Sports at the time, I was still doing, even in the times when I wasn't so much prominent on the Premier League, I was still doing some Champions League games for Sky and they took a decision and I was very pleased about it they brought me in and said we want you back on the foot we want you back on the football we want you part of that part of our part of our football team so I was back doing the football and the boxing again mm. no I imagine I imagine you you like yeah. that a lot actually That's I was going to happen hmm yeah, that's I, how it happened. Yeah, Johnny. Mm, I was just going to um, say as well with, with, with regards to the football. Obviously, Sky's changed a lot. I think in the past, uh, I don't know, fifteen years. Because at the time, I think the nineties and the and the I think it's the noughties that that, that is that what they call it. I think those two decades in particular were were dominated really by I think Richard Keyes, Andy Gray, Jamie Redknapp came in, and obviously the commentators. And obviously, there was an incident w- which changed their coverage quite drastically uh, I won't ask you about that uh, because I think you know I, I think that's unfair to do so but when Andy Gray in particular I feel like even when we take away the, the sort of controversies of what happened at, at the time obviously he was an outstanding commentator wasn't he a co-commentator who certainly there were many occasions where you thought you know he was kind of one of the guys the big guys if he was on the game it gave it a sense of gravitas, didn't it? I, well, that's what much of the audience felt. I mean, you, you've done commentaries with Andy Gray. Did you feel like when you were there with him, I don't know, his kind of voice, his kind of demeanour on the commentary, on the commentary mic, did that elevate a match for you like it did for many people at home watching? Yeah, I think um, Andy was the authority. He, his views were expert. And generally speaking, even before a replay had come up, he would have called the incident quite correctly. Mm. Uh, it was uncanny. And sometimes I, sitting alongside him, I thought, well, how did he see that? But he saw it because, you know, I've always said about co-commentators who sit alongside you, I can watch a thousand football matches and call a thousand games, but you can never see everything that somebody who played the game at the highest level mm. is watching when they watch a game. Andy, I think, was brilliant at getting that across. Mm. He was almost educating. Mm the viewers as he went along and and I don't think that anyone's really ever done that job of being no. the analyst or co-commentator any better than him no I mean I mean he was so good even that he he was almost like we, we talk about main commentators yourself Martin Tyler John Champion with the goal call, calls that they come and you can you can associate certain voices and, and words with a goal and not really the co-commentators, but Andy Gray had that sort of gravitas. Gerard against Olympiakos. Oh, yeah, beauty. But apologies yeah. to Andy for that impression. But he, 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 he just Wasn't had bad. it, didn't he? <laughs> 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 but he just had, he just had, didn't he? As we say, as the analytical eye, uh, but also the voice almost of a main commentator in many ways. The way he could express himself. Yeah, he did. Um... And there's an interesting point with that, because I think that was like an exception that proved a rule. Generally speaking, all of us who are like, as you were, the, the main lead commentator mm-hmm. would be very annoyed if the co-commentator talked across your goal mm-hmm. call. Mm-hmm. But on that occasion, you're quite right, Johnny. It mm-hmm. sounded fantastic <laughs> because Andy it was just an impulsive it was just mm-hmm. an, an impulsive outburst from him, which mixed with Martin's voice. sounded wonderful uh, as an an effect Mm. so it's not something you would do and Andy would know he shouldn't be talking across Mm. Martin but it was in its way brilliant in a way it just sums up football doesn't it you've you've got rules and regulations on commentary but sometimes it it, pure emotion just takes over and you can't help yourself as it should as Mm. it should we should never we should never 
never lose that. I, you never want the commentary to sound too dispassionate. No, absolutely not. Anyway, so you've, we've talked about your time at Sky there. Not too long, well, not too long, straight after that almost, you go on to ESPN, American broadcaster. Uh, they bring in you and I think Steve McManaman was alongside you for many of those games. And these questions were prepared because I know you shared a bit of a bromance, actually, because I watched, uh, very cute, actually, I watched the video on YouTube uh, of the outtakes. Yeah, that's had a few hits. That's, it, uh, yeah, that's, it, that's, that's done well. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, during your time with ESPN and during your time with Steve on the commentary, how much did you enjoy that? Because it certainly looked like you did from, you know, from those outtakes. And it seemed like there was a real family atmosphere at ESPN that you'd walked into. You were the main commentator, of course, as well, I think, with, with, with the broadcaster. Well, it was, it was a, a low-budget show that we were doing mm. for ESPN. It was going out at breakfast time mm. on the East Coast of America, usually the lunchtime game. And because it was a bit of a seat-of-the-pants operation, and, and, it, and the, it was, it was just the way we had to do it but mm. in terms of the access we had. There wasn't too much of a script, really. We had a general idea of things we might talk about. But sometimes th there's a lesson there. You can almost overproduce programs sometimes. I think the success of it was that we were making it up as we went along. The conversation flowed. There were a lot of laughs in there before the game as well, in the middle, in, at halftime. So we kind of give it a little bit more for the American audience because I think that, that's how they wanted it done. But we did the games. Once the game had started, we, we covered it like we would cover a game for England. But I think there were a few more laughs and, and Steve McManaman was always up for a mm. bit of a laugh as well. Mm. He never, by the way, he never ever wanted to be a co-commentator. He just mm. wanted to come in with some comments at halftime. And I said to him, you might as well do it. Look, Steve, you might as well give it a go because all you're really doing is just talking and articulating as, a, as an ex-player about the game that's going on in front of you. So he did give it a go and it's worked out. Oh, it absolutely worked out. I mean, even looking at the comments on that video and on social media around the time when it, it said that you were leaving ESPN, there were so many uh, Americans that were devastated. You know, they loved yourself. They loved Steve as a, as a partnership. Of course, I think I think the uh, the rights went to NBC then, didn't they? I think, yeah, they did. Um, NBC they did. and they've the done right. a very good job as well with, with the yeah, American yeah. coverage. But uh, was it? Did you feel a sense of loving from the American audience? You know, maybe some of whom maybe weren't quite as into football before you guys came in and NBC did it. Because America's love for football has really been a late bloomer, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I first started working for ESP. Well, I did the 1994 World Cup for them. But that mm. was kind of like a one-off. But I did the 2010 mm. World Cup and covered the USA's matches. And I covered that game where Landon Donovan scores the goal, wow, yeah. which turns them from going out of the World Cup to topping the group and mm. going through. And I think that was a big breakthrough America, uh, in America for, you know, for soccer, as they call it over there. <laughs> I think a lot of people got it at that moment. Wow. This is amazing. It became the lead story right throughout the country. The leading sports story was that goal and how the USA had progressed at the World Cup. And yeah, I think compared to, say, 1994, when people honestly didn't know that much about it or care that much about it, it's now pretty big business in the USA. Look at the size of the deal NBC have signed yep. to cover the Premier League. Um, and they do it kind of wall to wall and do a great job covering it with, with Arlo White as the, as the main commentator. It's grown a lot. It's still got some growing to do, but it's, it's become a, a major factor now. And if, if World Cup rights come up for the bidding next time they do, the figure will be very, very high to win the rights for the United States. No, absolutely. I think you're absolutely spot on there. And you mentioned the World Cup, actually. You did cover uh, for ESPN, I think, the some games of the 2014 World Cup. But the thing that stood out for me, I know you actually commentated on uh, the amazing game between um, Germany and Brazil. So yeah. that, that, that was a, a, a shock. I mean, another incredible thing to be covering. But just before we get on to some, some of your key games, Ian, and, and, and your time at BT, uh, during the 2014 World Cup, you were on an advert for ESPN, which, which was, yeah, you know what's coming, uh, where you commentated on, um, I think it was a, a man going for a date with a, with, a yes. few, with a few ladies. I mean, I've got to ask Ian, have you thought about do, being the voice for Love Island? And, um, <laughs> and, and, and well, I'd like the gig. It would be a pretty good one, I think. Yeah, <laughs> uh, talking about uh, upping your profile, uh, Love Island. Yes, I, 
I don't think I'd ever live it down at BT Sport or ESPN if, uh, for doing it. But uh, that was great fun doing doing that. It was it was the idea of some clever guy in ESPN's marketing department in America, uh, yeah. and I thought, what is this about? Is this going to promote the World Cup? But people really seemed to like it. When I got there, I was amazed because there was a proper Hollywood director directing it who loved the game mm. and had heard my commentary so he was great to work with there were all these people who'd done auditions to be part of it but mm. the, you know the, the the two uh, on the blind date together yeah. um, and we were there all day filming it oh. but i think what came out was was uh, I liked it anyway. Oh, I thought it was hilarious. So, so funny. And, and fair play to you, Ian, for doing it. I mean, it's it very, very much symptomatic, actually, of maybe ES, the way you described ESPN's fun camaraderie kind of approach to, to, to doing football, I guess. Well, yeah, but I do. They, they cover the game very seriously as of well. Of course. So yeah, no, no, they, yeah, no. The, the coverage in 2010 and, and 2014 was uh, second by second. And, and I know I got a call from Danny Higginbottom, actually, whose, whose wife, I think, is American. He was in America watching it and he said and it's the best compliment you really could think of from somebody who knows as much about the game as Danny he said he, he thought the coverage on ESPN was superior to anything in in Britain so yeah I mean yeah they but I do think this and I, I do believe generally as a broadcaster if there's a chance to lighten the mood a little yeah, absolutely. yeah we, we should do that in the end it is entertainment and you do have to be and Brian Moore the great Brian Moore always said this and i think this his great advice i think for any any broadcaster be be a good guest in somebody's living room mm. no I, 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 absolutely absolutely and uh, as you say humor often is a fantastic way to um to to liven up to liven up a broadcast and i completely agree with that and uh, i'm glad i'm glad you took you took that on book it was a brilliant advert um it made me laugh anyway when i was i mean i've seen it before but it was nice to um, nice to look back. I think it it just seems just seems incredible. It's like, it's like I, I often think it's like when you find out one of your school teachers supports a football team, you think you have a life outside of the. It's it's you know it's fantastic. Going back to uh, Steve McManaman, of course, because we we touched on it a bit before. So you, you consider him a really good friend now, then, because those three years that you spent together, you clearly got on really well. You talked about him highly at the start of at the start of this podcast. You you obviously have a really a, a really good relationship with him. Based on that time, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say we're bosom buddies or anything yeah. like that, but we text each other from time to time, and I think our sense of humour is fairly similar. And I think Steve's a bit like he was as a player; he kind of plays things a little bit off the cuff, or looks mm. as if he's doing that anyway. He has a way of projecting that. But I tell you what, he watches and knows a lot about a lot of sports. Mm. Nearly all the big sports in America he could give you a conversation about. Mm. He speaks fluent Spanish. I once yeah. saw, saw him do a piece mm. from his days at Real Madrid, <laughs> two camera for ESPN Deportes, that's mm. their Spanish arm, in perfect Spanish. And he gets phone calls from Zinedine Zidane, as you were saying. But we have a lot of... <laughs> we, get, we, get, we get practical jokes going on as well. So, yeah, Steve, Steve, Steve's good fun, to, good fun to work with. But a lot of the other guys are too, to be fair. Yeah, I, I imagine so. And he, he, he seems like, he, whenever I saw him on, I think he was on Premier League tonight, Fletch and Sav, of course, his, his time in, on commentary, you always get the sense that, that sense that he's quite an easygoing, but also very knowledgeable kind of guy as well. With that in mind then, when you agreed to join BT Sport after ESPN lost the rights, I was, uh, I, there's various commentator forums out there that's thought at the time that it would be a reuniting with you and Steve McManam and doing the games as, as a, you know, a successful commentary duo. But that didn't happen. And Steve was back in the uh, role of the studio pundit for a while. I know he's the commentator now, co-commentator, but to begin with, I spent quite a lot of time in the studio. Were you a little surprised maybe that BT decided not to go with you two as the partnership to begin with? A little disappointed, to be honest. Yeah, but I think the view was we had a guy called Grant Best who was in charge of BT Sport when it started. He, he isn't with the company these days. But I think he didn't feel it was quite right for whatever reason. And I, as I told you, everything's subjective mm. in our business. So people want to make their own mark. When they get the rights, they always want to do it something a little bit differently mm. than people have done it before mm. and say, well, this is our product. This is mm. the way we're going to do it. These are our people. So these things happen. It's just the way the cookie crumbles in TV. 
Mm, no, absolutely. Um, obviously, uh, the person who you did do a lot of commentaries with to begin with on BT was Michael Owen. Uh, he was fresh to the punditry business. And to be honest, I was a BT Sport customer as well, so I, I watched all the games um, that I could. And to be honest with you, I actually thought Michael was okay at the job. I thought he tried. I mean, I think he got better as he went on. I thought he, he, he offered insight where, when he could. He offered a fairly sound uh, reading of the game from the co-commentary perspective. And yet, if you read social media whilst Michael was doing commentaries, you'd think he was probably the most hated man in Britain. I mean, do you feel sorry for some of the stick that your co-commentators have received whilst they're broadcasting? Well, I feel sorry for the, the stick we all receive yeah. because that, that is something I think that the likes of John Watson and Barry Davis, mm. if you want to go, go back in time, never had to contend with. Mm. That social media, if you read it and let it get, take, you know, if it goes to the heart, and it does mm. sometimes, we've all got feelings, mm. it, it can destroy your confidence. So my general approach to it, and I'm sure Michael Owen's general approach and everybody else as well is, don't read those notifications because... Mm. There's an awful lot of trolls out there who just want to hurl abuse and, and insults at you. I'm with you. I thought, Michael, I thought Michael was good. But I think some of the criticism he received on social media wasn't to do with the standard of the commentary. Yep. It's, it's the way Michael seems to divide opinion generally, uh, quite wrongly. If people knew him, uh, let me tell you a Michael Owen story. My wife runs a, a charity for multiple sclerosis. And I asked Michael if he'd come down and appear at a, at a big function. So he rang me and said, uh, I don't think I can. Uh, he agreed to do it. Then he, said, uh, he rang me again and said, I don't think I can because I've got a Liverpool Legends game I'm contracted to play in. Then he rang me again three weeks later. I didn't get anyone to replace him. And he said, you haven't got anybody else, have you, for that charity do you're running? I said, mm. well, no. Why? Can you do it then? He said, yeah, I can do it now. He drove down that evening appeared, was charm itself to everybody, didn't get paid a penny and drove home again and got home at 3 a.m. He drove the length of the country to do it. So that's the kind of guy Michael Owen is and I really won't hear a word against him. No, I mean, yeah, it, do, it doesn't surprise me. I think, I think with social media, whenever I tweet or whatever, I always look to have reasonable debate. I'm always up for that. But there seems to be an issue with hating. It seems to be fashionable to hate yeah. someone or something, and it's not, it's not nice at all. I mean, without, you don't have to go into too much detail, Ian, but how did Michael seem to take the criticism when he was, you know, because obviously it's going to have some effect, maybe mm. a little bit, because he's obviously been taken, because early on on BT, I think Michael Owen did virtually every Premier League commentary, didn't he? It was every single yeah. week. So, but, but was he still, you know, positive, upbeat, didn't take it too much to heart or did it have a bit of an effect? I don't know really because Michael kind of keeps things much to himself and I think he's very, very tough. Mm. I remember he told me once, he said, well, nothing's ever going to frighten me much because my dad made me box when I was 13 years of age. And I was, I was scared. Did I worry about being kicked by defenders? No. What was the game I liked playing in the best? Going out at Goodison with the whole crowd against you. That really, that really got my juices flowing. So I don't think anything like that probably had the slightest effect on him, to be yeah. honest with you. And I think now, if you speak to Michael now, he'd say he much prefers doing the, the punditry in the studio than, than being up there on the gantry. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I hope it didn't have too much of an effect. I just, it, it does really annoy me, and I'm sure it annoys you and everyone. When you see people being mindlessly abused on social media, it's such a good platform if used properly. But sometimes people take advantage of that platform. Take you uh, forward a few seasons now. And uh, when Glenn Hoddle joined BT, their B BT as the, as the network decided to trial, or, well, they, they made three man commentary teams. A regular feature um so i think man united tottenham 15 16 season i think it was darren fletcher mm. michael owen glenn hoddle and then i think every premier league game for that season and many of the other games featured three-man commentary teams uh with either glenn hoddle i think trevor francis also in that third man position uh from a from, from your standpoint ian do you think the three-man commentary team did something more beneficial or any better than a than a two-man standard commentary team would didn't like the idea, if I'm perfectly honest with you, and maybe didn't make myself too popular in opposing it as well. Because I thought it placed us in quite a difficult position because we were not only having to call the game, we were almost like the conductor of the orchestra as well, mm. standing between two pundits either side. 
there really isn't room. And of course, you lose the rapport that you can get mm. if it's just the two of you bouncing off each other. So I wasn't sure it brought enough extra to it. But I tell you one idea that uh, BT Sport have come up with, and it's the best idea I think anybody's come up with in a long, long time. And that is using a referee as part of the commentary to give you the definitive guide mm. on a decision. And I'm surprised, I'll be blunt with you, I'm surprised Sky Sports haven't followed that because mm. I think their coverage lacks that. Yeah, I think Sky Sports did have Howard Webb on, didn't they, initially? I think it was a Monday Night Football. And then he came in to do a feature. But BT then, as you say, made it a regular thing on the commentary to have another person on board. And yeah, I agree with you. I think it, often when it comes to a decision where the player's going to have a certain viewpoint that might be out of passion or, or maybe, maybe out of touch, maybe with the, with the small intricacies of refereeing, a referee could look at that with his glasses and say, actually, if you go to the 355th page of the refereeing document, yeah, clearly. So obviously that, you know... This that, is the law. This is what the law says, and that you've got the definitive view from the guy who refereed the World Cup final. So, <laughs> no, ab ab absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, currently, Ian, you've done, you've done a bit of work on the World Feed recently. You've done work for BT still. What does the future for commentary hold for you, Ian? I mean, obviously, it's changed. <laughs> obviously, you've had such an extensive career. And obviously, right now, you're talking to me, and I'm sure you'd rather be preparing your, for, 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 a, for a Saturday match, no doubt. But you know, I also saw you last month appear on ESPN having a chat to Stevie Nicol about um, the offside rule uh, and whether yeah, or not... I do, I do that program, ESPN FC, which go, they broadcast every day on ESPN News and goes around the world. Mm. Good little show, by the way, with mm. a lot of uh, mm. hot topics um, debated. What does the future hold? That would depend on my bosses, really, mm. at, uh, at ESPN or anywhere else. Mm. So... If you get offered another contract, you get offered another contract. So it's it's the fine line where all doesn't matter what you've done. No. It's somebody's going to make a decision. There are other commentators coming through. It's not always totally secure. No. Well, I'd be offering you another contract, Ian. I think you're a fantastic Thank commentator. You. Well, you can come to my contract negotiations. <laughs> yeah, put put me on co-commentary, and I'll boost my portfolio. But looking back at at this time now, we, we've we've sped through that a, a lot of years there, and some really interesting insight from all that. Uh, if I said to you three games that you've commentated on that you thought the best three that stick out for you, what would they be, and why? Memorable football matches. Yep. Um, I was also commentating for the American audience when Sergio Aguero won the title. I know you were. I, 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 yeah. game. So that one, you mentioned the World Cup semi-final. Astounding result. Unbelievable result. Brazil won uh, Germany 7. I remember putting the microphone down alongside Steve McManaman and saying after that, people will be still talking about that game in 50 years. Mm. So that one as well. And I have to say the other one is that game I did when the USA rescued mm. themselves at the World Cup because that was a bit of a career changing moment for me mm. so uh, yeah I'd pick those three those three no very interesting okay one game that you didn't commentate on that you wish you mm. could have one game I didn't commentate on that I wished I could have Ooh. it's one of those you need mm. advanced notice off a little bit that <laughs> no uh, I know I do it on purpose yeah <laughs> And I'm trying to think. Let me think. Let me think. Oh, let's say the 1960 World Cup. Yeah, I knew. I knew. No, I'm sure. Um, what about, um, did you, I'm not sure if you did, but did you commentate on the Portsmouth FA Cup win? No. No, I was a fan that day. I've yeah. followed Pompey all my life. I was born yeah. in Portsmouth. So I, I wouldn't have wanted to commentate on that. I wanted to be there as a fan because that was like a lifelong ambition of mine to see Portsmouth win the FA Cup, and they did. No, I, ma I imagine that was that was an amazing feeling. Uh, could, if you were on commentary, just hypothetically, could you have stayed neutral? Yes, absolutely. I've covered many Portsmouth games. In fact, I covered one pretty recently in the FA Cup just before mm. this horrible mm. break that we're on when Arsenal won at Fran yep. Park. And yeah. uh, you, you, if anything, you almost overcorrect. So I've mm. never found it that difficult. Um, mm. And I, I said to them, they said, are you happy to commentate? And I said, yeah, because it's going to save another commentator doing all the research on Portsmouth. It's all <laughs> in my head. 
Absolutely. I mean, I I I I was aware that you had uh, commentated on the on the Portsmouth in particular. I was just sort of suggesting that on a game of such scale, an unprecedented level. I mean, I would, but obviously you're such a professional, Ian. I would imagine, of course, no game would be too, you know, you'd always be very uh, thorough and neutral. Good question. I'd like I just, to think so anyway. <laughs> good, 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 good question. Actually, I've just thought of right now before I move on to the team of the season selections. Would be, have you ever gone to a game where you think? oh, I don't want to do the normal level of research that I do because I know yourselves and I remember Derek Ray put a, a picture on social media of when he'd gone to a, a game, I think it was in the Bundesliga, and the amount of, re- the amount of research per player, it, you know, the writing was size five font, it was ridiculous, and he yeah. had so much per player. And I imagine that's the case. Only Not Derek just... could understand it. I'll see <laughs> Just like in all of our notes, nobody can understand it except the guy who's doing it. Only one person has to. For sure. But uh, the thoroughness in, in, in the detail in those notes, I'm sure is the same across the board. But has there ever been a game where you think, oh, I can't be bothered today. I'm just going to I'm just going to wing it, see what happens. Or, or, or would you say to yourself, no, I mean, it, I, I love my job. I love doing what I do. I'm always going to do the same thing every week. Generally speaking, what you've just said is the, is the way you'd go about, about it because you want to go there armed with as much info as you can possibly have. But I tell you a mistake people can sometimes fall into, and that is, look, I've done all this homework and you're going to hear it all. Mm. I think always let the game dictate to you. you. You hope you don't use a tenth of that stuff because if you use much more than that, it's probably been quite a dull game. So... You can over-prepare a match, and I've, I've, I've heard commentaries in the past where I thought whoever's doing this game's probably just had a bit too much time on their hands to get ready for it because some of these lines are a bit on the esoteric side. <laughs> but, you know, I don't want to criticise anybody because we've all done commentaries where we thought we could have done better. No, I'm sure. But, but that's, that was a very good answer. Now, uh, we'll, move, we'll move away from the commentary side of things. We'll move into the football side of things. And while there's not too much football going on at the moment we have had roughly three quarters of a season and I noticed Jamie Carragher and a few of the other uh, people at Sky Sports rolling out their team of the season so I thought well I'll ask Ian what his uh, main 11 would be you've you sent me it on Twitter I've also done mine which is the same apart from two players we'll start in goal because that's both the same for us actually Dean Henderson why Dean Henderson over Alisson and Nick Pope? Well, it's the team of the season. It's not maybe who, who's the best goalkeeper. Probably mm. the best goalkeeper is Alisson or Edison. But this season, I think Henderson's been outstanding and a big part of the Sheffield United story. And I think he's going to be in England contention as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, one thing that one thing that stands uh, that, that's been impressive about Henson, I think, is the confidence that he has for such a young player. I mean, uh, I think he made a mistake against Liverpool, and, and uh, even even his manager uh, Chris Wilder was quite, you know, he did he didn't sugarcoat. He said, "Look, he's made a mistake," and he was quite open about that. Surprisingly, to you know, to myself and to many watching, but you know, he just gets he got straight back up, carried on, putting in you know really solid performances, good with his feet, good good with his shot stopping capabilities. I completely agree yeah. with you, Ian. I think, yeah, he's, he's done really, really good this season. Uh, so I, he's also in my team. Moving into the defence, I think mm. three, of the four, three of the four picked themselves. Alexander-Arnold, Robertson, Van Dijk, smashing. You know, just easy to pick from. But the fourth uh, option, I've, I'd go for Johnny Evans and you'd go mm. for... Yeah. yeah. You've gone for Harry um, Maguire. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue too much about Johnny Evans. He's been made quite a difference, I think, at, at Leicester and, and the guy alongside him, Soyuncu, as well. But I've gone for Harry Maguire because Manchester United had the worst defence in the top nine mm. last season. Mm. And I think a big reason why they have a much, much better defensive record this year is Maguire. I think he's the captain now. He's been a leader and... I think he's been a settling influence, even when things weren't going so well for Manchester United, and they were going a lot better for them just before the uh, the break for the, for the virus. So I put him in there alongside Van Dyke. I think it's a really good point. And then yeah, Arnold, of course, and Robertson, as you, I think we've all had, and Van Dyke would be there for the rest of the back four. Mm. I mean, uh, just just on a, on a slightly separate topic with Alexander Arnold, incredible uh, performances we've been putting in this season for England. England have at the moment, mm. five players who could get into most nations at right-back. Alexander-Arnold, Wan-Bissaka, Rhys James, Kyle Walker, Kieran Trippier. I mean, that is 
a plethora of talent in one position, isn't it? It's, it's incredible. Yeah, really good selection there at right back. And, and it might be in certain games when you've got to the European Championships, which now, of course, are next year, where you might say, maybe we won't have Alexander Arnold because this is a game we're going to have to do a lot of defending. Well, maybe Juan Bissaka because not much gets past him. So that's an interesting choice somewhere down the road. I mean, Alexander Arnold, though, 12 or 6 in the Premier League, only De Bruyne is, is better than that. So. For a right-back, it shows you about the quality of his delivery. Brilliant going forward. He might be able to improve a bit defensively. So, um, you, you almost, he's in. You almost look at it with uh, Wan-Bissaka and Alexander-Arnold. If, if Alexander-Arnold's a 9 out of 10 going forward, he's a, and a 6 out of 10 defensively, Wan-Bissaka might be a 6 out of 10 defensively. and a nine, uh, Sorry, 6 out of 10 going forward, and a 9 yeah. out of 10 defensively. It's like yin and yang, isn't it, almost? Maybe five out of ten going forward for Wan-Bissaka at the moment. Ooh. That's an area of his game he has to improve. But yeah, he's, uh, he sticks out those legs and gets tackles in. And just like the Crystal Palace fans used to chant, your wingers won't like him. No, they, they certainly don't. Uh, he's a you know phenomenal player, and I think he'll do really well for Manchester United. Anyway, into the midfield. Uh, yeah. both, both gone for the same three. Henderson, De Bruyne, and Jack Grealish. I actually had... a. Mateo Kovacic and an outside maybe option for that because he's been excellent for Chelsea, hasn't he? The, the unsung hero in many ways of their campaign. Yeah, Kovacic has been good, uh, particularly in the earlier part of the, the campaign. But uh, yeah, he'd be an unlucky loser, I think, mm. in terms of... No, you can't pick everybody. Um, you could argue that Grealish has blotted his copybook um, with his playing bumper cars after the, uh, <laughs> going to a party when he should have been staying at home. But mm. I, I've decided this personally for our little game and chat just on football grounds Grealish has done a, a really good job in a struggling team at Aston Villa and I look forward to seeing what he'd be like with better players around him Oh yeah, I completely agree on the Grealish point, you know, and I'm sure he'll do wonders, I mean Paul Gascoigne wasn't always the same, was he? But on the football field he was an absolute, you know, he was a legend for, cl- for club and country uh, I'm not sure uh, Grealish is quite in that he's certainly loved to be I suppose half the player that Paul Gascoigne was because as we say phenomenal phenomenal talent got the ability as we say but I tell you someone who this season in particular when, he, when he's not injured I don't think there's a rival to Kevin De Bruyne is there in terms of a, a midfielder that's just got absolutely everything and he's the, best football, he's the best footballer in the, in the Premier League <laughs> Mm. absolutely it's just incredible I mean the, he's passing on both feet ability to finish works hard absolute dream I mean I think Paul Pogba actually is a very good player and you know when he's on top top form you think you know he's he's got the lot from midfielder but then you look at Kevin De Bruyne and you just think he's a level above even him it's just it's just remarkable isn't it yeah I think Pogba's got a lot to prove really whenever mm. he returns from his injury to be yeah. honest because like to be honest with you has he really done it for Manchester United no not uh, yet no the best performances of Pogba were in the 2010 uh, 2010 uh, 2018 World Cup weren't they I mean absolutely. for France yeah. it, where yeah. it was absolutely remarkable but I agree with you there's certainly a lot to prove and um, whether United get rid or they don't I guess it's up to them we'll go we'll go to Henderson actually because um so Guy Mowbray was getting into an argument with a fan about suggesting Jordan Henderson for player of the year. The fan was saying, you know, you're only saying that because he's English, but that's simply not true, is it? He's been phenomenal. It's a ridiculous yeah, argument. Think, yeah, it's an interesting argument to who will get the footballer of the year. And of course, we haven't finished the season yet. Let's hope <laughs> we are able to, to finish the season and we'll have a bit more evidence. But yeah, is Henderson the best footballer? No. Other players are better footballers than him, but he is the leader. I think he is, he's the guy that pulls them up by, their, by the collars of their shirts if they're thinking even of slipping. He is Klopp's number one representative out on the pitch. So you're looking at a team here who've dropped only five points all season, and Jordan Henderson's a pretty big reason, and I think even his teammates would say he might be the biggest reason why, they're, why they are where they are. So... Mm. I'm with Guy Mowbray. I, I agree. I agree with both of you. I think he's been he's been he's been phenomenal. And as you say, I mean, he might not be the most talented footballer technically, but you know, his leadership's incredible. His work ethic's incredible. I mean, Angelo Kante is not going to score 10, 15 goals a season, but look at what he did with his contributions in midfield off the ball. Uh, tremendous player as well. On to the attacking trio again. 
Salah and Mane, both of us have gone for Salah and Mane, I think. Credible numbers. I think Mane has probably outshone Salah this season. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Salah's had a bad season, of course. Um, He's a tremendous threat, Salah, all mm, the time. Mm. Huge threat. Sometimes gives the ball away. But you always think, when this guy gets the ball, there could be a goal here. Mm. Um, he's, he's dangerous yeah he is I mean Mane though I don't know if you about when you think about Mane his strength is ridiculous when he gets the ball and he, he, he's, he's, he's knocking people off who are bigger than him he's just a ridiculous freak of nature in terms of his, his physicality his trickery his ability to he's got a really good all round game hasn't he yeah he's strong clever great instincts gets goals sets up goals superb player and, you know, it was interesting to read the, the feature about him this week about, you know, the poverty that he grew up in and, you know, he couldn't afford boots, played bare feet, wasn't appreciated by people in Senegal too much. Uh, so he's overcome a lot to be the player he is. And I think he'd be in everybody's uh, 11 so far this season. And he might well be voted Footballer of the Year, although Jordan Henderson's got a uh, good shout at that as well. But we, we differ on one, don't we? I'm I'm going Aguero as my third striker alongside yeah. Salah Yeah, and I'm going Jamie Vardy because I think what Vardy's done again this season has been nothing short of remarkable. He's, you know, he's, age, he's, like, he's like you, Ian. He's like a fine wine. He just seems to be getting better with age. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just ridiculous, um, you know. I think I might be vinegar compared to Jamie Vardy, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I feel like a reduced kind of Stellarian, but um, you know, with 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 his output, though, it, it, you know, he's he's he retired from international football to focus primarily on his club, and I think he's been at the heartbeat really of, of Leicester this season, as he was in the title-winning season. He offers them a focal point up front. He scores them plenty of goals. He, he you know, the game before we broke up because of this coronavirus, he scored uh, two after a little barren run of he'd admit I think but I just think I don't know I, to be honest with you I looked at it and thought Leicester's done so well this season and I've only got one representative now I have two and Vardy you know one of their star players I just felt it was horrible not to not to put someone in go on Ian well, he's, the t- he's the top goal scorer in the Premier League so exactly. far this season Vardy so that supports your arguments and it mm. is a tight decision I think mm. but I've gone for Aguero because on minutes per goal he comes out as number one, and season after season, he is—he's um, just so good. He's such a predator, and scores all kinds of different goals. Yeah, close, different type of players, of course, mm. Aguero and Vardy. But but Aguero, when I thought about it, mm. yeah, if you, it's hard to oppose him. Yeah, no, Aguero again has been phenomenal. Abamyang as well. Abamyang's done some remarkable. He's got some remarkable numbers again for Arsenal, despite the fact yeah. they've had a bad season generally. You know, but who got an easy one for you, Ian? Manager of the season. Who could that possibly be? Chris Wilder for me. Oh, you got Chris me there. Wilder. I mean, everybody's going to say Jurgen Klopp and Jurgen Klopp, and I've got no, I mean, total respect. Uh, um, he's fantastic, Jurgen mm. Klopp. But what Chris Wilder has done with Sheffield United almost defies belief. Everybody mm. tipped that team to be relegated. They're in the race for Europe, for goodness sake. It's astonishing what he's done. And basically, with the team, they got promoted as well. They didn't go out and spend a fortune. Mm. Mm. So he is the manager of the year for me. Yeah, yeah. Sean Dyche for me, Ian. I'm not biased. I just <laughs> <laughs> he's done, biased. Done, done a remarkable job. Uh, with the, he does a remarkable job. Every he does. Year. No, absolutely, yeah. absolutely Great does a manager. remarkable Great job. Manager. I mean, I mean, you make the wilder point here just before we do finish. I think it, 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 I agree with you actually in many ways because I was sort of touting this and got shot down a little bit because the argument, the easy argument, is if if Liverpool were to surpass the hundred point mark and get the most points ever in a Premier League season, as much as I love Chris Wilder and I really do, and what he's done, I would struggle. To give him the to give him the accolade, but I completely agree with what you said as well. So it's like I don't know, it, it's apples and oranges. You don't, you just don't know which one to go with. But yeah, I mean that that was that was. I'm glad we agreed on nine of them because that you know that would have been an interesting uh, debate if we had eleven completely different players. Um, but I, on a lasting note, Ian, away from the football, is the, is the sort of a message that you'd sort of want to convey now, as in. You know, we're in, we're in unprecedented times. We don't know where the football's coming back, but when it does come back, and when everything does eventually come back to normal, 
how much sweeter will it be? How much more appreciative will we be of what we used to consider normal before? I think we'll be very appreciative. I think it's going to be an emotional day mm. when football returns after everything the country, the world has been through. None of us have ever experienced anything like this pandemic, uh, pandemic and, and, and what it's done. And I think everyone will have a completely different perspective. And maybe, although we'll love it and we'll still be glued to it, maybe we'll realise that it's really not quite as important as we always thought beforehand. So I just hope for everybody that you know, they, they can sit tight and stay home and, and help. Um, it, hopefully it won't be too much longer and we can get back to something like the world that we all used to know. No, amazing words, Ian. I mean, I, I just sort of, just to finish now, I'd just say that I think you need moments of adversity in life, really, to uh, appreciate the sweeter things even more. And um, there's probably no bigger adversity right now for many of us, you know, ever. I mean, this is unprecedented times, crazy times, things that we, you know, that have, sh- that have shocked us all. But if we all stay together, we all, we all fight hard to beat this virus, to beat this pandemic, then eventually, as we say, when it all returns to normal, when it all starts to sort itself out, then, you know, it will be quite an amazing day. And that was my attempt at some kind of Oscar Wilde poetry. Uh, but I don't think it was <laughs> quite on the same, the same level as that great writer. But no, Ian, it's been absolutely amazing. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I could pick your brains for hours, but I recognise you have a life too. And uh, so do I. <laughs> but I, I, I honestly, this was, yeah, what an absolute pleasure. So thank, thanks for coming in. Thanks for all, all of you that have been listening. And uh, hopefully we bring more, some, you know, more fantastic guests onto the show. And we, delve into their lives a little bit treat it like a like a pound shop piers morgan's live stories and and uh and uh yeah we'll see you next week we'll see you next week okay thank you johnny thank you pleasure nice one